0: Welcome to Circuit Break from Macrofab, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and automating circuit board design. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dillman and Stephen Craig. This is episode 406. Circuit Break from Macrofab. This week, we are joined by a very special guest.
1: Dr. Duncan Haldane is the CEO and co-founder of Agidex, a code-powered PCB design platform that aims to revolutionize circuit board design by integrating automation with human expertise.
0: Prior to co-founding Jidex, Duncan was responsible for a hyper-aggressive pogo stick, which I'm going to have to ask more about, robot <laughs> called Salto 1P. After discovering just how much work went into designing Salto 1P, Duncan was inspired to start X because he wanted a better way to design robots.
1: While he pursued his PhD at Berkeley, he started collaborating with Dr. Jonathan Bachrach on better design tools for origami robots. Duncan's work in robotics won him a best paper award from the IEEE International Conference on Intelligent Robots and Systems and a Guinness World Record for robots he built in college.
0: With some exciting
1: new releases from Jidex on the
0: horizon, we wanted to catch up with Duncan and are happy to welcome him to Circuit Break.
2: Wow. Thanks for the warm welcome, guys. Well,
0: thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Yeah, pleasure. So Duncan, can you tell us a little more about yourself before we dive into everything about this podcast?
2: Sure. Yeah, so before I was working at GEDEX, I was a a research scientist at UC Berkeley. So I went to Berkeley because they have these, like, maybe some of the best collaboration programs of any research university. Like, I was in an electrical engineering lab, but I was a mechanical engineering major. And then I taught classes in integrative biology. So I was there to do like bio-inspired engineering, which is like, how do you systematically rip off nature? (laughs) It's like, (laughs) there's like one alternative for human technology and you have have nature. So how do you you treat that scientifically and come up with new ideas for designing robots was my interest. And before that, grew up mostly overseas. Parents were nautical archaeologists. So they were over in Egypt and Turkey uh, excavating shipwrecks because that's where the history is.
1: So before we get into the meat of the podcast, from your bio, there's two things that really stood out that we gotta hear about. So what is this Salto 1P robot? An aggressive, hyper-aggressive pogo stick.
2: Yeah, hyper-aggressive pogo stick. So it got that because it pulled like 20 Gs of acceleration when it was on the ground, which is like a lot. And it spent either three or 7% of its time touching the ground. And this was a jumping robot. Usually you spend about half the time, but it was, like, mostly airborne. So that came about. My first robot was a, uh, a folded hexapedal cockroach robot. That was what they were, origami robotics. We had this laser cutter process where you could basically make uh, flexural mechanisms in a single, like, laser cutting step. And then you can fold them up and you make, like, a spatial linkage. And then you, like, stick a motor in there. And it turns out to be a pretty power-dense way to make robots. So I made this hexapedal running robot. And then I went down to the FEMA training site in Menlo Park, and this is where they train the first responders. You know, we're interviewing like people that were there at 9/11, and I took my little cockroach robot there, and I was like, "This is gonna do nothing." <laughs> like, put it next to this big chunk of concrete from a simulated collapsed building. Is like, I'm not gonna be able to do anything with this robot. I need a different concept for how robots can move in this terrain. How do you get a? Sm- I was interested in small robots. So how do you get a small robot to move in like what is a human scale? environment. So that was the idea. And I noticed that robots are kind of bad at jumping. Either they like they can like wind up for like 6 minutes or something and then they like do a big spring loaded jump and they can go really high, but it's not really controllable. It's not really useful for like moving through an environment in a planned way. Or you can kind of have a bigger robot. Like I think Boston Dynamics got pretty good at jumping, but that's a that's a big robot. You cannot put that on a collapsed building without collapsing it some more <laughs> so the inspiration was like all right let me find an animal that's better at jumping than what's been used before so we found the bush baby which is like you know that little, like, cute monkey and it's got like these huge eyes and it, it jumps like a freak <laughs> it's got it can jump like two meters from a standstill and then do that again so salto is like kind of studied its legs and its mechanisms and figured out when it jumps it actually has this way of pulling on a muscle which loads up the tendon stores a bunch of elastic energy and then launches that all as part of one motion so you get like all the controllability of like a powered motor that has a direct connection to your leg but you, then you get this uh, basically spring powered amplification of that power to be able to do like a really really powerful jump that was the origin of that, and I could, like, sketch that out on a piece of paper. And then I spent, like, three years as a hardware engineer trying to build this thing. <laughs> I got, like, really <laughs> fed up with, like, how hard it was to make hardware. So that's, that's a bit of the background. But, yeah, it was, it was new because it, it weighs about 100 grams, which for the Americans out there is about as much of a stick of butter. And it has a four-foot standing vertical. So it can just go from nothing to four feet up in the air, and it can do that every jump and it can also jump off walls, and it can jump on chairs, and it can like move through this environment. Just like power density was the thesis my research. Like, I, I don't think robots have enough power. So Salta was uh, the jumping version of that.
0: Pogo stick is probably selling it short then.
2: <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> this was, I think Pogo stick came from, you know, I was talking to IEEE about it after the fact of like, this is a weird robot. Most robots spend more time on the ground. This is basically like, mostly an aerial robot, but it's got a leg. <laughs> but it, it doesn't fly, but most of its time is not on the ground. You know, we compared it to, like, a cheetah. So you can look at, like, you know, as our animals run faster, they usually spend less time on the ground. So you kind of have, like, shorter stance phase, and they'll push off harder. And so it's like, if you look at the duty cycle, it's like a cheetah running at top speed on one leg. Like, one of its legs is, on like, our life. stance time. Yeah, so it, it was just, like, this really weird point when you look at the original starting point, which was nature.
0: You said that the hardware to design that robot was challenging. What was challenging about it? What made you decide to start an entirely different company to solve that problem?
2: (laughs) Yeah, so I'll say it wasn't just Salto there. But if I think about what was hard about Salto's hardware, it was, so we needed this like particular mechanical advantage profile, which is like the ratio of like when you twist the input, how far does the output move? And so we needed like this basin of really low mechanical advantage so you could like power up the spring, and you're, like your mass and acceleration is kind of holding you in place so you can like power the spring harder. And then you needed to deliver that energy without exploding. And the not exploding part was really, really hard. So we did that with a couple approaches. One, and it, this ended up being an eight bar linkage. And we actually invented new ways to design 8-bar linkages while we were designing this robot. So one thing we did is like we did a constant force profile on the output, which lets you basically cut your peak force in half if you compare it to like constant. So you can cut the amount of the leg explodes in half. And then it needed to be reactionless. So a reactionless mechanism is like you can move it, the leg extends, and if you did that while it was floating in space, it wouldn't rotate at all. And most mechanisms do not have that property. So you think of an astronaut, like, bending their legs or swinging their arms, like, they'll they'll rotate in space, right? That's the default. So this one, like, there was so much energy (laughs) in the release. If any of that turned into rotational energy, you're just going to be, like, spinning like crazy on the takeoff. So that was, like, another constraint. And then it had to be lightweight, because it's a jumping robot, and if you make it heavier, it doesn't jump as well. So that was, that was a lot of the difficulty, but then, honestly, the electronics took the longest. Like, I needed a custom motor driver, and I tried to give it to a series of undergrads, and I, just no one was able to take it over the line. So, like, the motor driver part took, like, 18 months to get to the final version, which, honestly, still was not very good.
1: So that sort of leads into the intro to Jidex. Can you give an overview of Jidex and what is it?
2: Sure, so Jidex is an EDA tool where you write code to design your board. You can write some pretty simple code and generate an incredibly complex design by just running that code. And it automates things like all the way through symbol creation and land pattern generation and like optimizing your land patterns to your materials and your process to get like the most yield and then generating a schematic and then generating a layout for you. All of that you just kind of drive from code and you're trying to make it like the fastest way to design a circuit board. Like the fastest way to get a working board on your desk is is what we try to do because manufacturing is is hard but it's pretty fast (laughs) relative to like how long it usually takes to design a circuit board so we're really trying to take that gap and just like shrink it down as much as possible
0: can you go into more of the code side of it because i think that's where a lot of our listeners are probably thinking at this point is when people say code they think like python or c-level programming and then when you talk about hardware, it's going to be like Verilog or VHDL. Right. None of those really talk about a circuit board, though. Right.
2: Yeah, so the language was something we worked really, really, really hard on. So hard, in fact, that we actually spent the first few years of our existence as a design consultancy fooding this tool to make it work and get the language stabilized. And it ended up being like a language that works in weird ways, but kind of looks like Python. <laughs> so the... You're familiar with Verilog, which is great. You know, back in 1984, Synopsys was like, hey, put down the drawn tools. You're going to write code now, and we're going to take that code and turn it into your chip design because it's crazy that you're trying to draw hundreds of thousands of transistors. And then, so they had Verilog, they had VHDL, then later it merged with Verilog. And then that didn't happen for circuit boards at the time because they were kind of simple enough, right? Back in the 80s, circuit boards, not that complicated. Kind of big, kind of rectangular. They had parts. Nothing was too powerful or too fast. So our approach is like, how do you take the usual stuff that you need for circuit board design, which ends up also being like kind of like system design, like where you're designing a system of circuit boards and you have functions to map to stuff, and how do you map that to a hardware language? So it's a general-purpose language, unlike Verilog, where you can have things like parameters and reuse of things, like the modern power of a programming language. And then we added some statements, some extensions. We had so like, instantiate a thing called PMIC, which is this module from TI, right? And so that's a line of code you can write. And then that starts creating this data structure behind the scenes. And you, the fun thing is, like, you can write any code to generate that. So you get, like, kind of the simplicity and the reuse of Python while being able to still design hardware with it very precisely. And that's that's a lot of the origin of the language. People that coming in usually have some experience with Python or have some experience with embedded C or some MATLAB. First, like I am not a software developer, <laughs> and I can use this language. We meant to keep it like pretty straightforward and direct for hardware users. Yeah, you know, the big challenge is like take all of the work you do as a hardware engineer and make it all reusable. Not just your circuits, not just like kind of copy-pasting schematic sheets between projects, but like actually getting reuse in the way you think about a design, and that's that's like. primary design challenge of the language how do you make that easy how do you make that like simple and precise yeah it was tricky to get right
0: yeah because when you talk about um python being that way is learning like if you're doing your own internal development it's uh turning parts into modules and that kind of part. that's what you're talking about there it's reusability you go oh i've been copying this one function around 80 times let's just make a library for that now
2: yeah exactly so how do you get Like, software is great at reuse, right? Someone can upload a script to GitHub, 50,000 people can use it and customize it and build it into their own projects. You upload a hardware design to GitHub, like, if you want to touch any part on that or connect it to something else, you basically have to know how to redesign it from scratch.
0: And not even just that, though, is if you download that project, let's say we're using GitHub as the storage for that, there's not really a good way to fork and merge back into hardware design. Like the moment you modify something, because ha- when you upload it, you basically have to override whatever is there. There's no conflict resolution with hardware design.
2: <laughs> and a big part of that's like the representation that you upload. So even if it was like a, an ASCII file, like KiCad, they have ways to work better with GitHub to make it a bit more civilized. But the only thing you can put into your hardware design is really, really low level. Its symbols, its land patterns, its connections, your intent and your smarts and why you made decisions at best is like a comment on the schematic, right? It's not actually part of your design.
0: Do you have a name for this language? It's just Jidex. Okay. <laughs> so for Jidex, how does the intent come into play here?
2: Yeah, great question. So one of the design principles we had for it is like every line of code should be like one line of intent to a hardware engineer. Like the way we think about problems should be like there's no complex map of like, oh, you call all of these functions to make it happen. No, it's just like one line of code is one line of intent to like create this, make this port, you know, connect these things together. And then you get to start layering that kind of layers of reuse on top of that. So you can say like, okay, I'm going to pack this into a module and I'm going to put that module, which is like a module is like components and nets and other modules. So you get to like stack hierarchy as deep as you want. So at every level of your design, it looks like one line of code, one line of intent, and that works all the way up to requirements. Like you do your market research and then you like make your list of engineering requirements and then your design should look like line for line, line of code, line of requirements. And when you do that, You get to like change your requirements in real time and just rerun your code and get new designs out the other side.
0: This is a huge shift in how, I guess, you even approach designing from a classical standpoint, designing a a circuit board. What's usually people's first reactions when you say that? Because right now our listeners can't react to you right now. Um, (laughs) But so what's your experience in that?
2: So I think there's definitely a split. So like some people chose electrical engineering so they would never have to write any code. It is not their thing and that's fine. They are not You're, you're our talking users. to one
1: right there. Steven's like that. <laughs> I I yeah, I, I don't I don't <laughs> absolutely hate code, but if I can avoid it, I usually try to. <laughs> sure.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, and there's like the world runs on people like you for sure. Like there's that one guy with a big gray beard at Apple and he's like the analog Gary. <laughs> His name's Gary. I only have one <laughs>
1: Analog Gary. Gary,
2: that's great. Analog Gary. <laughs> so there's like, some people are like, no never is a reaction. And the other side is like, I've been doing this for 30 years and you're just coming along now. <laughs> like they've been waiting for this. They've tried to build it themselves a few times. They'll like tell you about the the backplane generator they made in a sequel Like back in a project for the 90s and how great it was, but it it wasn't maintainable because they couldn't attach it to other stuff. Like, a lot of people have tried to build this because the idea itself is like pretty natural. Like, code is pretty good at reuse and circuit board design techniques are currently not. So, can we make code work really well for that? There's not much in between, I've found. Like, you're like, yes or never.
1: One thing that's going through my mind right now. I'm curious about the nuts and bolts of things because in electrical engineering, throughout all of our schooling, it was a very visual discipline where on a whiteboard, we would draw these symbols that were supposed to represent components. And then we would, on the whiteboard, we would apply parameters to them. Here's their value. Here's some extra things to them. And then we'd calculate around that. But if we're just talking about code, you kind of don't have that. So how do you get around
2: that? I think you definitely still need that. I'm like maybe one of the most visually (laughs) oriented people you'll meet. Like I need to see something to understand it. So what we do is like when you run your code, you generate a schematic and you generate a layout and then you just make it really, really fast to run the code. So you do like a small incremental change and you see your new schematic and layout and you just preserve that speed to see the visual feedback. So you're still like working with the same representation. And for us, like, a schematic is totally unnecessary. <laughs> it's like a documentation format. And we had to do so much work to get it to pass like the smell test for electrical engineers of like, it's got to be a good schematic too. You can't just show them any schematic. It's got to be, you know, kind of fitting all the patterns that you understand. Wow, that was really hard. It's got to be well laid out. it got to be well laid out. got to be well organized. It's got to be readable. Readable, hierarchical, explorable. All of this was really hard for something that's like, you don't necessarily need it to get a working board. But in the process of making it, you actually really do. It's really helpful to see the schematic. So we do it through the work of actually making that thing and then also making it adjustable so you can like customize it to match your own preferences because they, they do vary.
0: It's really interesting hearing about the code and because you, you kind of basically, it's like you're building the net list is kind of the, not the whole thing, but that's kind of the initial steps because you said you're connecting components together, that kind of stuff. The first EDA tool I ever learned didn't have a schematic editor. And so you built the netlist in a text editor and then imported that into the layout tool, which was um <laughs> I didn't know yeah. any better. <laughs>
1: <So>. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it it just seems flipped around because in a in in an EDA tool, you create a schematic and it spits out a netlist and says that this is connected between these two parts. You're just I shouldn't say just, but you're writing that, and it's it's just flipped.
2: Yeah. So, and that would be if you were like typing out a netlist was your main design activity, but that's not a very productive way to design things. It's really about how do you get reuse in there? How do you use solvers? How do you avoid having to like do all of that really low-level typing? Like almost always, it's a sign that like something's gone wrong if you're spending time typing out a netlist.
0: It's like, okay, we have this one part, let's say an analog front end, like an ADC setup that's got the same capacitor and resistor like filtering network. It's connected to the same connector. Let's say you're doing it the classical EDA way, like an Eagle or whatever. You copy and paste that thing eight times and then have to rename all the nets so that they don't conflict. And if you did it on the opposite (laughs) end, let's say back when Parker was in, in high school, it was copy, paste, and then also like, changing all the numbers so that the nets are all different. So I'm in the, like, this is awesome boat. Um, <laughs> cause I also, I, I'm the typing codes, not really a big problem for me, but it's more of the typing while doing an EDA layout is something I typically do. Oh. I use Eagle primarily because it has a command line interface and cause I'm, I'm more like drafting like in, um, Autodesk before Autodesk had like a mouse. Yep. <laughs> so you could, you typed all your commands out, which is that goes back to building the netlist by hand, which is not the right way to do it. But me typing and then hardware stuff happening on the screen is normal for me.
2: Yeah. So if you take the example of that, uh, no, the ADC. So we have like a, take a preamp for a microphone, right? You got to take some the MEMS microphone, amplify it, feed it into an ADC. You just make it into a function, right? Because, like, the task of design a preamplifier is pretty standardized. And you can make it parametric to the op amp, for example. So, like, you just kind of, like, feed in. It's like, hey, design the preamp using this op amp. And, like, here are your, what, active bands for the audio signal. And so then inside there is, like, there's standard ways to design filters and feedback networks. And then, like, each one of those things is its own function. If you look at, like, how you get reused. You just kind of like chunk it up into the parts that you're usually designing in a spreadsheet or an online calculator You just kind of bring them all together in code. And then that code can do other stuff like make your schematic and so you don't have to mangle the nets and it can also like attach to your supply chain and choose all the parts that are actually going to work and, and then actually verify that because it knows that it's in a microphone preamp and it's like this is how you check all of the components and circuitry in a microphone preamp and then get you to layout as well. So it's the code is mostly like it's about attachment, really. There's a bunch of like little local islands of electrical design that are like really good online calculators or like nice antenna generator or something, but there's nothing to connect them really. And when you connect them, it starts getting like amazing because that's how you get to optimize your design. You get to like search and explore more when you can actually connect that pipeline all the way through.
0: Yeah, and I'm also seeing this how kind of like how for me, when I started using, you know, going back to CAD stuff like Autodesk Fusion where it's parametric design and everything is connected so to speak let's say you built your first revision of your circuit board and you go oh i need to go change that one resistor value but there's like 500 of those resistors on your board (laughs) and it goes to that point where now you only have to change the underlying function in this in this case and uh it propagates out
2: yeah exactly and i think. A key thing we put in the language to make any of that trustable by like an expert engineer who's like usually very concerned about this because they've been bitten a million times is that we built a way that you can write checks in the language. So if you design, let's take a voltage divider solver, for example. So you you have a function and you can call it and it's like, all right, here's your voltage divider designed. And as an expert, you can put a line in there that's like, these are the verification checks you need to run on this voltage divider. And then those checks run. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, passive derating and make sure it's going to like over the operating temperature range, like the TCR is not going to throw this out of the spec. All that expert stuff. And it just runs when someone else calls your function. And that's, that's like the major way you get reuse because you got to be able to trust the result of automation because you don't want it to be like, hey, I changed 500 resistors. And you ask, is it right? And it's like, mm, <laughs> probably.
0: Well, no, and what you're saying about is someone else you reusing that circuit, for example, and they decide to go shoot it into space instead. And they go, oh, well, now it's outside the operating parameters and it fails on this edge
2: case. That was actually the case for this voltage divider solver is like, you know, for the simplest circuit, what does it take to just nail it to the wall? And, you know, talking to a team designing satellites and they said like, well, if you don't want your satellite to reset every time it goes around the earth and goes from like minus 40 to 90, like these are the things you need to check about resistors. And then, That wasn't that hard. And that's just one thing that's just kind of like pegged, right? You just don't have to worry about that anymore. You can like worry about the rest of your design.
1: Yeah, I I see a lot of, well, two things uh, that we've been touching on that, that really actually apply to what I'm working on right now. I'm helping out my team a lot with EPSA and WCCA, which is electronic part stress analysis and worst case circuit analysis. So being able to say like take a voltage divider for the simplest example, apply all the parameters that change in a resistor and take them to their worst cases in every combination and see what you get. That is fantastically more simple in code than it is to I don't know, cook something up in Excel or write it out by hand, right? And so if you already have something built out in code that I see a lot of benefit in that. And at the same time, like you were mentioning, having circuit blocks, I designed something a while back that had 30 different two-pole saline key analog filters. And we knew every single one of these filters was going to have the same op amp. It's just however many different flavors of R's and C's get connected to it. Now, if, if I just had a solver that I could just say, run this function 30 times and give me all of these filters with this Q and this cutoff, and the schematic dumped out, that would prevent me from the one time I didn't copy and paste correctly in my EDA tool and screwed up one of those and required a whole different board rev for it. So yeah, there's a I I see a lot of benefit in in handling things this way. As long as we also tie together what we were just talking about with having the visual aspect with it, because we're still taught visually. So, you know, you're coding and then you see the schematic change, and that allows you to make those quick changes to the but you're always changing the code in it. In
2: a- yeah, absolutely. That part I can't live without. <laughs> it was like early days not having that, I had to I ex- basically export it all the way to KiCad to be able to see it. <laughs> and it was like, run this entire compiler. We didn't have any visualizers at the time. It was rough. Cause like you want to shrink that dime down to like nothing where you hit run and it's like new schematic.
1: And so in your visualizer, do you have the ability, uh, maybe this is a little pedantic, but do you have the ability to scoot things around and move them? Because as I'm learning, is every job I've worked, every manager likes to see a schematic a certain way. Yep. Uh, and so, yeah, sure, I can put code and just dump it down, but then can I move it into the way that makes them happy, basically?
2: Yeah. So that's what we added, actually. So not only did we generate a schematic, we made it interactive so you can shove it around, but you actually cannot change the netlist in the schematic. So you can do the aesthetic changes, but like when you move a resistor, its wires will update. And it won't you cannot change the correct design you got from code when you're trying to make your manager happy by making it and like you know, all the <laughs> downstream text, like it's not just the manager being arbitrary, like lots of people consume your schematic. It's important that it looks like organized in this way. And then over time we just try to automate that as much as possible. So we have blah blah AI machine learning approaches to help just make fewer nudges necessary.
1: You know, I actually got a quick story that something like this would actually solve. We ran a board at work and it came back and there was a, I think it was like a five volt, no, a 4.3 volt Zener that was supposed to be regulating to 4.3. Well, we measure it and the line is reading 11 volts. So the entire engineering team is saying, how does a 4.3 volt Zener regulate to 11 volts? So we're going through every possible little combination of how the circuit could do this. Well, what it ended up being is on the schematic, a ground symbol got moved to the base of the Zener and it was actually on the schematic touching but it was not actually connected. And so on the board, there was a five thousandth gap from ground to that zener. So as we just jumped it and the circuit worked and, and it was fine. But that's a situation where visually it worked, but software would have just forced it. You couldn't not be connected, unless you wrote the code poorly.
0: <laughs> Y'all can't see this, but Duncan had the most painful expression no, on his there's been a lot ever. of these
2: stories in it. Each one hurts. <laughs> like I, I had one where it, They were bringing up a board at a uh, complex board at a large company that makes lots of processors. And they are using, I think, a cadence tool. And they had uh, the text of a net label overlapping a wire. And that had actually changed the connectivity of the design. Not like the label was on the wrong wire, but like the wire happened, or no, I think it maybe crossed to like a reference designator or something. And it turns out that behavior is totally undefined and actually changes your... List. Oh, so know, Yeah. The graphical part looks fine unless you know this like weird 30-year-old bug in the visual CAD tool. It's rough because it, it doesn't know that much. It's a, it's a drawing tool, right? And the expertise is on you and like what you can do and your process of maintaining correctness as you draw and then checking someone else's drawings. It's hard to automate anything there, which is kind of why one reason routers never really worked yet.
1: I guess he's
0: hinting at at the next topic.
1: (laughs) Actually, just before we go, I want to get to that, but I have a quick question about how do you manage libraries in JITX? Do you just have them as, I shouldn't say just again, but modules where you create parts in like a header file? How does that work?
2: Yeah, great question. So everything in JITX is code. So your land patterns are code and your pads are code and your symbols are code. And then you can make components which link a component think of it as a thing you can buy. So that's got a land pattern and a symbol and it links them together. Uh, that's code as well. And when we, we have importers so you can bring in your existing libraries and we just like generate code from those. And yeah, so library management just kind of looks like put it in git and you don't need like a special tool to manage your library. you know, like the, these tools are helpful like I think a lot of all team users like 365 or 360 because they can collaborate on their libraries. We don't have a special library manager. It's all open code. And GeneX just runs on your computer, by the way. It's not like in the cloud. It's like a local tool. So it's just code on your computer.
1: How about properties for components like manufacturing part number, voltage, those kinds of things? Is that just embedded in there somewhere?
2: Yeah, also code. So you can make your own components. And we also, like, we are building a database with all of the good data and verified data we, we can find. And that's up to a few million parts so far. So you can do things like have that voltage divider solver, and it can like say, like, okay, for this output, I have all the TCRs and I have the precisions and I have the tolerance and I have all the supply chain information. So like here's a voltage divider where both value is like triply sourceable and it meets all of your constraints, and it's okay to go to space. So feeding that with data helps a lot. And yeah, you know, we try to be collaborative because like component makers also want to sell their parts. This industry has a lot of data problems in terms of like There hasn't really been great automation or simulation tools to use that data. So the data's kind of hanging out in in PDFs and stuff or like behind an application engineer sometimes. So really trying to solve that one as much as we're able to.
0: It's almost like a data structure. I mean, you're saying it's code, but you're kind of building like a, a structure. But rolling all that information that's important about the design in one space is, I think that's where the power is at. And instead of having to go through all the documentation to find some weird thing about, you know, that voltage divider formula might be okay around space, but what if you send it to Mars?
2: Yeah, exactly. there might be a weird edge case. I mean, it seems to be being normalized. (laughs) At least that's the goal of a few people.
1: Yeah. (laughs) If I could go to DigiKey, search for a part... And suck it in and it pulls in all the parameters about it, including what would be nice is you know, safer operating curves or, or whatever that's actually buried in the data sheet. That would be amazing.
0: Well, it sounds like, Stephen, is even if it didn't have that right away, you can go and go, oh, this one particular curve you care about, you can go and just put that in there.
2: That's right. Yeah. So none of this is like proprietary file format stuff. Like it's all code that you can edit and see exactly what it's doing and so yeah you can get in there and customize you can make it fit your own way it's like oh i think about resistors in this different way (laughs) and you can just add that
0: i'm actually also thinking it'd be really cool when you do if you say you're testing stuff outside of their manufacturing boundaries and you can put that kind of data i guess in there as well put your own curve in that's you know not in the data sheet or anything like that your own empirical evidence so to speak
2: yeah, exactly. And there's ways to just do that at a few layers with code. Like Stephen was talking about worst-case circuit analysis, right? So we run so every time you run your code, all your checks run, including like full aerospace-grade derating analysis, right? So the first level, you can just kind of change the parameters. Like if you take a space-grade part, they say like, all right, this power regulator is good for like 50 percent of its rated value, and if you like turn that knob to consumer electronics, is like this power regulator is good for like 105 percent of its rated value. <laughs> And you can just change that number, right?
1: Well, we've been talking about schematics this whole time. Jedex uh, is a bit more than that, right? There's a whole layout aspect to it, too, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. So we took on layout to finish schematics. That was the original purpose, and then it started working really well, so we just like, kept doing more on layout. So the goal there was like, when you're finishing your schematic design, one step you need to do is usually you've got to like swap some pins for routability. So like you got a microcontroller, a processor, FPGA, connector, fan app, flex board, whatever. Like, Usually you got some like, alright, I need to swap these mechanical things in the schematic so I can make routing better. And if you look at what it takes to solve that problem, that spot on the board is usually one of the densest spots. Like, whatever's got the power to swap pins around, usually a microcontroller or a processor is like usually in the most congested part of the board. And the routing around that is usually like Trace space, trace space, trace space. Like there's no, there's no slack, and because it's well, and this is if you like worked a lot on your layout. Because if there was slack, you would have squeezed it out. So what it takes to do that is actually a full router to make sure that the solution you got for pin assignment actually works. So that was how we got started on the routers. So you know you can drop a microcontroller FPGA in your design, say like, look, I need these ports: give me three I two C, this SPI, DDR interface, and then in the router. You can now assign those pins and rewrite it on the fly so as you're doing your routing you're also doing your pin assignment without having to like dig in the schematic and look at the table of what all the pins can do and try to find the non-overlapping configurations of spy pins and then like go and edit your schematic and then like go and edit your layout you just make the router do it
0: yeah it knows that that one let's say rat line is a spy and you go oh it would be better on these other two pins that are also it knows that it's spy, so it allows you just to swap over
2: Yeah, so in the code, you can model basically the full configurability of any I.O. capability of any part. Like, full complexity, no matter how constrained it gets. So including, like, this is SPI, or it's this pin of an I2C bus, or it's, like, this pin of a UART. And then you have, like, have you ever played with, like, STM32CubeMX? It's like, you can configure the ST microprocessors, and figure out like what a valid PIN assignment is. And (laughs) when we pulled in this data, there was like 750 unique capabilities you could put on PINs. So it represents all of that and all of the constraints such that when you request interfaces from this device, it'll give you a valid assignment or tell you that one is not possible, and then you just have to change your design instead of like searching through tables for like a week to figure out, you know, what's the smallest STM that I can actually buy that solves my PIN assignment problem? You turn that into a line of code. So that's why we built a router, is because you need to do that swapping for routability. It's like, you know, get as much signal integrity even as much, like, use the cheapest process you can get. And you needed to be able to assign pins to do that. And that's not just microcontrollers. You can actually do it on, like, literally anything. So you can just, like, add these layers. So, like, okay, it doesn't actually matter which ESD diode I connect to. It just needs, to, like, this needs an ESD diode. So it, it opens up the rest of your design, too. But yeah, that's how we got into the auto routing game.
1: So what, what we've seen uh, before was the use of the word AI in relation with auto routing. So auto routing traditionally in our industry is kind of a negative word, kind of a bad word. I'm curious what you're doing to combat that.
2: Yeah, good question. It's not marketing. Marketing is not my strong suit. Uh, so I talked to a lot of people about routing and like people designing all kinds of stuff. And I found that there were users of autorouters. And what they would do is they became experts in setting it up, so they would like figure out how to turn all of your, you know, electrical constraints and signal integrity constraints into like geometric constraints by looking at the dimensions of the, you know, the material properties. And then they would box the router in and say, like, route this collection of pins only on this corner of the board. And then they got some productivity out of the autorouter. So our idea there was, like, this seems like a pretty valid way to work, and autorouters have the same advantage of designing with code, where, like, you can put rules into it, and it'll be right every time. Like, you make the autorouter, you, like, load your DFM and DFX into it, and it will make a valid design according to that, or it will tell you that that design is not possible, and you got to move something. So you get, like, the same advantages of, like, hey, everything's going to be more correct now using the router. But we started with it very boxed in. So we found that like most of routing is placement, so you design a router to be like very interactive, not like a big batch thing that you set up for thirty minutes and you run for like a few hours and then you like come back and change the placement. Like that's never worked for anyone. But if you instead say like All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna make this router and I'm gonna make it interactive with placement, so when you run the router it makes traces and then you can move components and those traces just update. You don't have to like reroute. So you, your design immediately becomes more alive. It's not like you move a resistor and like trace is left behind. That's a wild behavior, (laughs) So our approach on the autorout is like, look, let's really respect that engineers want to choose how their components are placed. They want a router to support that and figure out like, in this configuration, this is what the routing looks like. If like the best you could do it. And then just really embrace that interactive side. And also use, the other part was um, to cut the setup time down to zero. Because people don't like auto routers, and they for sure don't want to spend time learning how to use an auto router and how to set it up, and then like how to, how to type in the constraints and the optimization weights to like get the router to behave. Like nobody wants to do that. So that's another thing we just automated. So you know, in JEDX, like like I said before, you have complete information, right, including your stackup, including your material properties. So it knows, like, okay, this is going to be a 50-ohm impedance line, and I can kind of look at the stack up and figure out what the dimensions need to be. So, like, all that setup is just also automated as part of your code.
0: Yeah, because you you would have already looked up and typed in what your impedance requirements are for those traces. And so, yeah, it it would know how long and how thin or wide to make them. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Instead of
0: having to hand that off to the your assembly document specification that only, like, half the CEMs look at.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're trying to make, like, really good design process, like, the easiest thing to do. So, like, fabs are happy to send you a stack-up diagram and, like, all right, here's all your control impedances. Like, make them exactly this size, and we will, we will put them down. And they know how to run their presses, right? So just make that a design input. And if you need to change it later, just, like, change that and have the rest of your design update so you don't have to, like... If you design a board that can't be made, it's not a helpful board.
0: No, that's actually a good point is, especially for very complicated designs, you have to basically go by a manufacturer of a PCB fab, get a stack up that's going to work for your design, which you might not know it will or not. Because let's say we're talking like eight plus layers. So you have to like shop around for the right PCB fabricator that might be able to build your board. And then you have to go back and do a, basically a design cycle change to do all the impedances to match what they can build. And then hopefully everything matches up. Whereas in this case, you would just have to put in your design requirements into the code and then get the stack up and plug it in. And then, is is the wrong word magic happens?
2: (laughs) I mean, you just run the code. Like your stack up is one of the inputs to your code. And when you run with a different stack-up, it just adjusts your design because it knows exactly what you're trying to do because you told it exactly what you were doing because code can express that. And so, yeah, instead of kind of being at the <laughs> in kind of like fabrication now.
0: Because you've, you've had the design around their process.
2: Right, yeah. Or, you, you know, your design evolved and something crazy happened over the years and now you, have, you need like any layer vias and you, <laughs> you've made this like unobtainium stack-up because it's so hard to, to start over. Like, you know, someone touches the memory interface, so like, this maneuver is gonna cost us a month. It's bad. And so that's why we're trying to make the routers so that, like, you get the schematic problem solved. It's actually really delightful to, like, swap pins and just, like, get nice flows out. But then you get to make it parametric to your fabrication stack. Not just a stack, but also the rule set, right? So you don't have to, like, get in there as, like, oh, I will now tweak the solder mask allowance for every part of my design.
0: <laughs> yeah I was actually thinking about the solder paste on that. Yeah. Cuz some manufacturers want 1 to 1, some want you to window them, etc. and just make that as a design input. So on the auto router. So we already talked about how you made the schematic, so the schematic is how engineers want to see it. Now, when a seasoned electrical engineer looks at a PCB, they know it was auto routed. How, how are y'all solving that?
2: <laughs> yeah. If a, I, uh, I,
0: I see a lot of circuit boards <laughs> at MacroFab. Oh yeah. And I know I, I know in an instant if it's been auto routed or not. So some,
2: <laughs> some good spaghetti. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> can, can you figure out like which, which flavor of auto router it was like, ah, this was the Eagle router.
0: The two's I see a lot is Eagle. And then uh, what was it? It's called free route.
2: Yeah. So what we focused on for the auto router Is making high performance geometry the easiest thing to create. Because the usual flow with an autorouter is like, ah, I will route all of my critical signals by hand and I will shepherd them through all of the scary and uncertain parts of my design. And then I'll throw the autorouter the rest. And it will make the spaghetti, but it's all lower uh, speed, GPIO, who cares? So one thing we're doing is reversing that is if you look at Kind of the modern design challenges you're trying to do like a pcie gen six the geometry you need for that is precise like very difficult and you start needing like any angle routing and like very careful shepherding of your differential pairs and their skew so we built the auto router for that to make it so that when you're designing a high performance layout is the easiest thing to make and that is like we're not using anything that looks like the approaches in the Eagle router or the free routing router. So it's like, it's topological. And that, that gets you some benefits of like, when you move a component, you haven't moved it from its grid location. And in a topological sense, you haven't moved it at all. So you can actually like, just kind of move stuff and your routes just update. So yeah, our jumping off point was very different. It's like, if we go back to synopsis, right? So in the, in the 80s, they like, say like, hey, you're going to use code to design things. And their first proposition is like, it's going to be more correct, right? VHDL was a simulation language before it was a design language. But the reason they really won was that you could design better hardware with Synopsys than without it. You can make a bigger, faster, no, smaller, faster, (laughs) more powerful microchip than your competitors if you used Synopsys. And like, that's the direction I'm trying to push our automation is like, when you use it, you should just be able to make better hardware. On average, for every project at every level, it should just be better than what you would otherwise do by hand. So that—that's kind of the purpose of like how we directed the auto router is like we use the physics and we do all like what does it take to do all this leading edge stuff and how do you get the most out of a any factory really when you think about balancing like manufacturability with various constraints. So I'm not sure what happened with other auto routers, but they didn't land there. Uh, so we're trying to take like a let's start with that, and then we'll make it more automated over time.
0: Yeah, I, I think on most auto routers, at least the ones I've used, they just try to make the connection, and then sometimes there's optimization on length or like optimization on least layer change.
1: Yeah, it, se- it seems like a, just a large equation that gets solved, and that's it.
2: Yeah, and for to give traditional auto routers their due, like. They don't have no idea what your design is. (laughs) Like they just don't know. That's true. Like all I know is connections, and I kind of know layers, and you can put some dimensions in, but that's uh, I don't know what this PCI thing is. (laughs) I have no idea what to do with that. It probably needs a lot of vias. Sounds important. (laughs) 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 Yeah. So I think that's probably a good half the problem is just knowing precisely what you're trying to do. And then from there, it's just like a bunch of really hard geometry and search problems to like find the shapes that do the right thing.
0: We talked a little bit about how electrical engineers are taking this. So you've talked to a lot of them. What, what do they really say about the autorado part?
2: So there's been an an interesting shift. Some comments I get are like, why isn't this 45 degrees? <laughs> because <laughs> you know, the uh, it can be any angle, right? Other conversations I hear are if you kind of go to some of our larger customers, there's a couple things. One, they do not have enough layout help. The people that lay out complex circuit boards are a demographic that is not being replaced. Overall, in the industry is not an attractive career path for a lot of people. So they are buying automation. <laughs> like they need they say, like, our next design tool needs to have the best auto-router. And that's like last couple years type of thing. Like with the pandemic and with the kind of demographics in this industry, some people just need automation. (laughs) And it was slim pickings out there, so we tried to build something better. On the other side of things, some people have like, oh, we can just kind of, we got our layout farm in India, and we'll just kind of like, it's in boards and we don't really care about their time. We'll just get designs back. But what they want is, Optimization. They want to increase the speed of design uh, while using like really high performance geometry to make better boards. Like, how do you optimize your material set and your layer stack and your your routing structures and your via structures for signal integrity, for power integrity, so you can make you know, a smaller board that has like more airflow in the data center? How do you then optimize across other boundaries in your system as well? So they want to like ratchet up the speed of design iteration so they can actually optimize for the first time. (laughs) Because usually you just don't have time to optimize. You just kind of like, well, it'll take three months to figure out if this works and uh, we hope it works. (laughs) Otherwise we'll we'll add some layers and try to get them next year. And they're trying to do better than that.
0: Yeah, I'm just back to optimizing for the PCB fabrication side of it, where now instead of having to be like, okay, I have my stack-up set, my design set, I send this out to five different companies, and then I get five different quotes back, and one is going to be cheaper than all the other ones because your stack up matched their stack up or similar enough. But now you can go, hey, give me your cheapest four-layer option, for example, and then you just plug those in, and then boom, now you got your five designs
2: that can get exactly put out to those fabs. And each one is customized to each fab because that became easier. Because, like, I think that's the thing. Like, we nice. it's nice to think that we have standards, but every fab's different. And every fab, you can, like, get a little more juice out of it.
0: Every single fab is completely different. Yeah. Even if they had the same materials, they all had different machines and how they operate them and how they assembled the boards. Some like to put um, thicker foils instead of plating. Some like to put extra plating instead of foil.
2: Yeah, some like to etch the hell out of it if they ever had like a delamination problem and then your signal integrity is shot because your loss is through the roof. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and so like this is one thing we're trying to do is like you take the code-based automated approach, go from like requirements all the way through the factory. Because if your design's not like the best thing you can make at that factory, you should probably just have a better design. And so we try to figure out how to support that. How do you make it so that you can just kind of add pieces to this as it goes along and it just kind of gets better. That's what we're trying to do. But yeah, it's tough. It's a big world out there and it's not its not very standardized. <laughs> no, as much
0: as we want to believe it is, it is not in electrical engineering world. So I have a question then, uh, Duncan, is what, what's the future? What What is the next like... Where do you see yourself in six months? <laughs>
1: six months.
0: <laughs> and then, like, a couple of years down the road with uh, Jitex.
2: So we're working on this big product push on, like, you know, we got the schematic level feature, and now we're adding, basically, here's an autorouter that can do power. By the way, we didn't talk about power, but it can do power traces as well. That's pretty fun to play with. And signal integrity. So you can kind of do, like, all of the highest spec stuff. And then we are... So we're helping grow with our customers. They're like picking us up on the on the enterprise side, but also growing with um, kind of startup, small, medium business teams. Like usually it's like people using Eagle, KiCad, Altium, and they just have like a lot of work to do. So we have this product coming out is just like how do you just amplify their productivity as much as possible? They don't need to do PCI six, but like how do you just make it like usually they've got a design contractor that they hate <laughs> and they're trying to figure out how to like really design faster and not have to like churn through a bunch of people to like get their design work done so we're, we're launching this product for them and then after that on the technology side, it's about more automation right so how do you now you've got an auto router that can do your hardest stuff and do it like really well How do you just keep closing the optimization loop how do you help them place their board? How do you like really help them if they want to search materials or stack ups and optimization? Like, how do you actually support that formally, rather than like do the thing you're doing but really fast? So that's what the next six months looks like. Um, and then as you look towards the future, like GEDX means just-in-time everything. So this code-based approach, like the important thing is that you can add a bunch of domains to it and they can all collaborate. You know, like to design a circuit board you got like 14 different domains or so. I, I listed them out one day. But, you know, power and signal and RF and manufacturability and thermal. And the tools today don't really have a way for those experts to collaborate. They collaborate in like PowerPoint and spreadsheets. So in, Design reviews. Yeah, exactly. Everybody get in a room and look at these pictures. And that's how expert knowledge is disseminated. So if like for circuit boards, we're like bringing all that in one roof so that... You can actually automate it and make your work reusable, including your review work. And then we're also expanding out into like electromechanical integration. Because like my background is designing robots, I want a better way to design robots. And it's like, usually the best thing I see is like you have a mechanical engineer and sits next to the electrical engineer. And they argue about where to put the inductor and where to put screws. And like, what if they could actually share a representation of the problem that they're trying to solve?
0: I had a mechanical engineer tell me that I had to, we had to design a special screwdriver to assemble their product. They didn't collaborate well enough with the electrical engineer that the connector was too close. Yeah.
1: I'll one-up you on that. I'd, at a previous job, I actually had to machine my own screwdriver for a part just to be able to screw it on. <laughs> so so how, about, uh, how about simulation and SPICE and building that in?
2: Yeah, so that's uh, we've got some basic Spice integration, but that's a big part of the upcoming roadmap. So not, not just on physical design. Basically, I mentioned those checks, right? How do you know a voltage divider is right? And we've got some ways to use Spice that, like, turn that up to 11, Or you want to start basically being able to workbench your design. Like, this design's going to space, and how does my load switch behave in three years? Or here's my FPGA. Please generate a SPICE model for it so I can use it at a system level simulation and actually check more system at like much more thoroughly what all of the issues are. So just take those, we usually try to add these solvers and simulations to like take the code you, that users write, make it much more powerful.
0: I mean, I'm even seeing now, you're probably thinking that already this, Duncan, but like you're talking about now your physical setups can influence your SPICE models now in terms of Let's say you design a switch mode power supply that's really the very touchy on parasitics and most time you just try to keep the loops short and all that stuff and then it kind of just you roll the dice and it works right
2: yeah <laughs> but crosses. now
0: hey we can now have a spice model for the switch mode and it can take account of all the parasitics now because now it's in our model or in our code I'm sorry I keep saying it's a model. Uh, it is a model. It's describing
1: your thing, so I think of it as a model. If if it could take board-level information into account and feedback and say, here's the type of compensation that would be best for your switch mode supply, or maybe not the best, but like, before you go actually test it in the lab, here's your R's and your C's, and give this a shot, it's probably going to get you close. Man, that would be incredible.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you, can, you also have the... Uh, the inverse problem, where if you run Spice simulation, you can drive some of your uh, constraints for the router and not not need to say like, okay, this is the voltage here and it's gotta behave like this in this case. So it's very, that's one thing we took on with the layout is like, you know, we got the whole design now and the whole design is like system of conductors and dielectrics and, and then all the components that you put on it and all you got is physics there. So yeah, no, Spice has been, it's challenging, honestly, because. I've, I think there's a big deficit of good SPICE models. I tried a few spot simulations of like, all right, I'm going to go to this like leading provider of switch mode regulators, and perhaps they'll have a good SPICE model. And it like outputs from 3 to 17 volts, and the SPICE model only works at 5.5 volts. <laughs> like It has no other level of output that it can do. And so maybe there's a nice cluster of good simulation models. And I, I know there's some worst-case circuit analysis firms that just like make their own. They're like, we're going to make a fixture and we're going to measure it and then we'll make the spice model because we know how to do this. But that's one hope I have for the industry is like, maybe we can do better than that. If we have like a simulation tool that can do a lot and do a lot automatically, maybe more people will simulate so we have better models.
0: Maybe we'll get more Rev1 is the product now.
2: Yeah, I think that's the hope because if you do more Rev1 is the product, like you created Rev1 in software and then, hey, bits are pretty cheap. You can search for hundreds of red ones and have like a really firm understanding of like what's the best we could make this, or like do we have time to try that new idea?
0: I'm actually like also thinking about like if you need to change the actual physical layout of your board, it makes it so much easier too. Now, We're like okay, now I need to move this connector to over here. Like for a lot of like can circuits, is not the right idea for it, but um, if you need to change like a connector for a different OEM. Cause a lot of times, like, let's say you are building a, a device for GM and Ford comes to you and he goes, I want that device, but we use Delphi connectors and we don't use TE connectivity. Like we want this other particular, actually, I think Delphi has been bought by them, but whatever.
2: Um, <laughs> they um, might still say that.
0: Yeah, they might. Still, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we use this other connector. Well, boom. Now all you have to do is in your code, change the connector and then everything propagates out and you run your code in your term and it has replaced it on their board. It's already routed out for you. So now instead of having to be like, oh, it's going to take a month to do the design revision and get it built, well, now you click a button, it gets done, and now you just pocket the – because Ford's still going to pay you the design fee, right? Yeah. And you're just got to put that in your pocket.
2: <laughs> yeah, there's so many opportunities for that. There's a lot of people that are sort of like, Hey, I'm just doing a lot of repeated work all day. And I know how to do stuff better than this. But there's no affordance for them to like reduce risk and move faster. That's always what I found the trade off is, is like, yeah, we could accelerate this and but we'd like skip some reviews or skip some analysis. So you don't really get to like go faster, you just kinda get to like slosh risk around and maybe it's in a bad board when it shows up or maybe you spend a bunch of time reviewing it. So like, yeah it should be like that, right? <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> when I started designing circuit boards, I was like, it should be like this, right? I, I've always thought that
0: <laughs> when, um, not as the extent that you've gone, but like, I'd be like, oh, I need to draw this one trace. Why can't I just draw all 14 of these traces at once? Yeah. Because they all follow each other and go to the same part, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Like I've seen some tools that do that and they like take all your traces and they like smoosh it into this bus that has like the maximum possible crosstalk. And then you can like route that bus across your board. It's like, do people really want to do that? Like you want to write all the traces, but you should also like, you know, not make it like the worst possible edge-to-edge coupling that you could ever make.
1: (laughs) Don't look at my pinball board. (laughs)
2: All
1: right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I, I see some value too in just making things uh, fairly easy to do some low level practical stuff, like as an example at work, we were figuring out for our double e team you know when we want to export our manufacturing files, we want everyone to kind of do the same thing. Well, if I could just write a function that you just run and it dumps out your assembly drawing and it dumps out all your Gerbers in the same format, and it's just all I do is I hand somebody an approved function and they run it that Saves a ton of he- uh, heartache.
2: Yeah, you don't have to like worry about the version correspondences between different files. Yeah. It well, helps and you—you,
1: you, I mean, you can do revisioning on functions at that point, right? Yeah. The quality team says, "Hey, I don't like this one statement that shows up on all of our assembly drawings. Can you change that?" So just go change that one statement in the function, and done. You've fixed it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I like that. Thanks.
1: So, Duncan, I think at this point.
0: Our listeners are probably wondering where they can learn more about Jidex and also where they can probably try out the software if possible.
2: Sure. So our website, JDX.com, is pretty out of date in terms of all the content that I talked about. It's, I'm working on updating that. Uh, but there they can sign up for a free trial. So we have like a subscription model. Uh, but we also have, we built for smaller teams a uh, token-based model. So you can just get like daily use tokens. Because like some people's use is like really really spiky, right? But everybody's got a, a two-week free trial, uh, and then we also have a program for educational users, like students in university, as well as like potentially open-source hardware contributors, and they can they can get a free license.
0: And you did mention like libraries import for people's components to make into functions. What gets supported there?
2: Right now, we support KiCad and Altium. For those, uh, and then for our enterprise customers, we're on Cadence and uh, Mentor Graphics support. And KiCad has an Eagle importer that's pretty good, so you can kind of you can chain centipede it, it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: EDA tool Centipede.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's about as pretty as the original, but it works. KiCad developers are really good,
0: and so that's actually what sets us apart from a lot of other kind of tools. Is it's its own tool now? It's not a plug-in for a uh, pre-existing tool, uh, EDA tool.
2: Yeah, we try to, you know, we partner with them. We got partnerships agreements signed with all the major folks. Because we're, we're focused on building the automation that it's just, like, not really possible for them to build. And then maybe yeah, just kind of share data formats back and forth. Because there's some stuff those tools do really well. Like, if you want to coerce a trace into being 45 degrees, like, JEDEX exports, like, a fully editable CAD project. Right, so you can get back into your existing tool because maybe your supply chain team like doesn't want this new thing, and you just like want the standard outputs from your existing flow. So when we export, it just like goes back to native CAD project.
0: So yeah, really, you could make this as like your your basis, and then hand it off to like your layout team at the end.
2: Yeah, if it's not laid out already. Yeah,
0: well, yeah, you know, it's already <laughs> laid out. But what I'm saying is, uh, Steve and I have been talking about AI. A little bit in terms of how engineers are, are starting to use it and viewing it as a tool to augment and make yourself more efficient and reducing errors is how i like to approach it and if it can take away your normal day-to-day bullshit work <laughs> um yeah is the way i i say it we're like i've routed a usb connector to a microcontroller like uh, probably a 1,000 times in my life. (laughs) I don't need to do that again.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, and for me, it was uh, when I was designing in the traditional tools, it was fear. Like, have I forgotten a detail? Have I, somewhere in a spreadsheet or a part number or like a rotation, have I missed something that's going to make this not work and like cost me a couple of weeks to figure out what went wrong? that's what i try to get for the automation is just like at least it just handles those details and it'll tell you what it did (laughs) so you you don't need to like guess that's one thing i I try to do as much as possible is like how do you how do you kind of free their designer from that
0: yeah so your designer is thinking more about how to make the product better instead of is my crystal gonna fire up because i put the right loading
2: capacitors on them right (laughs) yeah exactly because everyone I talk to knows that they they could be designing better. Everybody wants to optimize or try a new idea. But hardware is like ruthless with the schedule, right? So you don't get much freedom to do that. And so how do you get out of that trap?
0: Well, I want to thank you so much again, Duncan, for coming on our podcast to talk about JITX. So that's JITX.com. That's right. We'll have those in our show notes, everyone. Um, but yes, Duncan, thank you so much for coming on our podcast to talk about it.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was awesome.
0: So, Duncan, we're going to have our show notes uh, on our website. We have like a, a discourse where our listeners can listen, talk about it. And so actually, if, if anyone actually comments about it, I'll let you know, Duncan, so that either you can respond in person or in, well, not in person. That'd be kind of weird. You can either respond or you can give me some information for them or however you want to do that.
2: I might just join the discourse. I was on your Slack channel previously. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: And that's uh, circuit break.macrofab.com. All right. But again, thank you so much, Duncan. This is great. Yeah. Thank you so much.
2: Yeah. Thanks, guys. This is awesome.
0: Thank you for listening to Circuit Break. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman and Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you yes you are a listener for downloading our podcast if you have a cool idea project or topic let steve and i know tweet us at MacFab. and we gotta change that to x or just get rid of it no one even tweets at us everyone goes to circuit breakmacfabcom just go there everyone just go there